You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 2. Yesterday I drew your attention to the fact that at the present period in human thought, we compress the whole world within abstract lines of space, which stand perpendicular to one another and form the three dimensions of space, whereas life itself shows this three-dimensional world to be much more complicated and much more concrete. In order to gain an adequate conception of all that this means, we must grasp it in even greater definition. If it is true that our thinking is associated with the vertical plane which cuts through our axis of symmetry, our willing with the vertical plane, which stands perpendicularly to the thought plane, while the plane of feeling rests at right angles to both, we must ask why we do not experience above and below, right and left, in front and behind, as three directions distinct in quality from each other and not interchangeable. How is it that we simply feel them as three space dimensions of equal value? We certainly speak of length, breadth, and height, but if we form our three planes in this way, each at right angles to the other, we might place the line, which was horizontal in the first instance, in a vertical position, and the other two would then become horizontal. In short, we could make three different arrangements. This only shows that all the care and exactitude with which these three dimensions are built into the human body, becomes quite abstract when used by man to describe and explain the whole universe with the sun and the stars. It is important to ask how we manage to obtain abstract space dimensions from concrete ones. An animal could not do this. An animal would always feel its plane of symmetry as a concrete symmetry plane and it would not relate this symmetry plane to any abstract direction, but would at most, if it could think at all in the human sense, feel the rotation through different planes. The animal, in fact, does feel this rotation as a deviation of its symmetry plane from the normal. Herein lie important and essential problems of zoology which will grow clear once man begins to study the true impulses at work here. The reason that animals can find direction, as is shown most clearly of all in the case of the migration of birds, is because they do not feel the three directions of space in a nebulous way, but feel themselves as part of a quite definite direction of space, and feel such departure from this direction as an angle as a deviation. Now, 
If we wish to understand how this applies, how all this applies to man, we must call to our assistance what we have already learned about the organization of the human body. We have heard that man is a threefold being, consisting firstly of the characteristic head organization, which does not of course include the head alone but chiefly functions there, and extends throughout the rest of the body. Then there is what I will designate circulation man, all that belongs to lung and heart and embodies rhythm in us. And lastly there is limb man, whose inward continuation constitutes metabolism or the transmutation of substance. We now need to study this threefold man more closely. We will first think of him in terms of head, rhythm and limbs. Of these three, only the third, with its continuation inward, is strongly connected with the forces, not the substances, but the forces of our earthly planet. This does not imply, excuse me, this does not apply to headman, for what is he? Parenthesis, we are not now considering physical substance, but the forces, the formative forces which condition him. Close parenthesis. Head forces are the metamorphosis of the limb forces of the previous incarnation. The forces that formed the limbs in the last incarnation have, during the period between the last death and the latest birth, that birth which, which brought us into our present existence, been in a world which we have often described. There they were metamorphosed so that they could form our present head. Thus, head forces and limb forces within us are complete polar opposites, and the central mediating rhythmic forces in us create adjustment between the two, balancing or reconciling them by means of rhythm. This antithesis between our head and limb forces must be examined further. We shall perhaps be able more easily to approach these matters if we examine the following example taken from another sphere. Consider the plant, not for the moment a perennial plant, but an annual, which develops from seed to root and stem, and during the year forms its fruit and seed. Such a plant grows from the seed that has been planted in the earth. Out of the seed, in the course of the year, emerge the roots, then the leaves and the flowers, in which, during the fruit stage, the new seed develops. This is the cyclical development of the plant. The plant proceeds from its seed in the earth, grows until it reaches the surface, where it receives the effects of light from the sun and the effects of warmth. Under these influences it grows still further and completes its cycle by returning again to the stage of seed formation. But now, when it returns to the seeding period in autumn, we have the plant not below in the soil, but above the earth. And here all summer long it has been dependent upon influences descending from beyond the earth. These influences helped to promote its growth to the point of new seed formation. It has therefore grown to the point of a fresh seed formation, not under the influences of the earth, 
but while, one can say, drawn away from these by extra-terrestrial forces. It has become once more what it was before, and yet something different. In what sense different? The completion of the new seed terminates the process of growth. Development ends here. And the cycle cannot be completed unless we take the seed from its own plane or region and return it once more to the earth. That is to say, if we follow that seed up into the sphere in which it is beyond the earthly element, we must then bring it down again under the earth. Then, once more, it grows up toward heaven. And then again, we must bring it down to earth once more. That is to say, further growth depends upon returning the seed to a lower level. We must return to earth what has been generated by celestial forces. Therefore, it is not sufficient merely to consider the sequential cycle from seed to seed. We need to see that the plant, in a sense, outgrows itself. And when it has outgrown itself to a certain stage, we must bring it back again to its original starting point, where it is once more received by the same forces, and the cycle begins anew. We can now draw the process in a diagram. If this is the earth level here, then the cycle of evolution for the plant must be drawn thus. But the plant must again return to earth, and so if we draw several annual processes, we must advance a little further each time. There you have the difference of level. We must continually return the plant to a lower level. I have given you this as an illustration. And before we pass on, something else must be considered in connection with it. Notice the way in which the bean plant arises out of the seed, and you will understand what I mean. You will realize it still better if you observe a plant with a twining stem, one that is naturally inclined not to grow up in a straight line if certain forces are able to act freely. The bindweed is an instance of such a plant. Now let us pass on to consider this picture in connection with man. If instead of thinking of the yearly cycle of the plant, we turn our attention to that cycle which leads man from one earthly life through the spiritual world to the next earthly life, we have there something quite remarkably similar. Think of your limb system in the previous incarnation and your head in this incarnation. The head is formed through a metamorphosis, and it is only visible change that is interrupted by all that takes place between death and a new birth. The head is formed in the same way as the new seed in the plant is formed out of the old. But the whole of the intermediate life of the plant lies between. Thus, from the point of view of the organization of his form, it is as if in man the root existed in the previous incarnation, and out of this root has grown the head of the present incarnation. The head, therefore, represents something analogous to the seed. But in man all this takes place, one may say, at a higher level, in a higher region, and is, besides, more complex. 
And now, in order to complete this picture, think of the whole metamorphosis of the plant. If you observe bindweed, you will see from the spiral or screw-like form of the stem that external forces are not such as to cause it merely to grow in a straight line, but induce it to grow in a spiral form. The plant has a tendency to spiral formation. Only when the new seed is developed does the seed resist this tendency, for then everything is entirely concentrated in this small grain. The seed withdraws from the influence of the universe. In the case of man, limb forces are most subject to the earth's influence. Parenthesis, in our rhythmic region things are different, and we will speak about this later. Close parenthesis. But the head is something which withdraws itself from earthly forces and takes no part in them, just as the seed takes no part in the external influences. Only because the head withdraws from earthly forces are we able to think in abstract thoughts. Were it impossible for our head to separate itself entirely from earthly influences, we could not think in the abstract. This fact is actually expressed in man's very form. Think for a moment that your head actually embodies transformed limb forces. The latter, however, are active in walking upon the earth's surface, not so the head. The head may be compared with a man who is comfortably seated in a motor car or in a train. He does not move and yet goes forward. The head is in this position in respect to the rest of the organism. The latter advances, moves forward, while the head rests as though in a vehicle, not taking part in any of the movements, but withdrawing itself in a very evident way from earthly forces. The head is like the man who lets himself be transported by other people. Such is man's head organization. It withdraws from the earth's influences, and we can therefore say the head of man shows itself, at least in this comparison, similar to the seed that withdraws from the external formative influences at work on the plant. But with man it is not the same as with the plant. The latter grows from the earth upward toward the celestial influences. Man grows downward. When he arrives at conception or birth, he is in the first place a head structure. External embryology affords absolute proof of this. He brings with him his head as a transformed product of the last incarnation. During this earthly life, through the forces of it, what most develops are our limbs. These grow from the head. They are less evolved than the head and entirely under the influence of earthly forces. The head, on the other hand, is entirely withdrawn from earthly forces. Thus, in observing plants, we can trace in their spiral formation the forces that give the plant its twisting, winding form derived from celestial bodies. But when we consider man and see how he grows down toward the earth, we must ask what has given him the capacity to grow in opposition to the laws governing the ascending growth of the plant. For man grows downward and gradually becomes subject to earthly influence. What is the explanation for all this? This is a most important 
indeed an essential question concerning not only morphology, the study of the human form, but man's whole being. You see, if we were obliged to live our inner life without a head, it would be entirely different. We would be incapable of any abstract ideas. Above all, we would not be able to conceive of three-dimensional space as abstract, but would strictly differentiate between front and back, right and left, above and below. All these directions would be for us quite distinct in character. This is, in fact, what our organism does. As soon as you advance, through the methods of spiritual science, to an imaginative conception of the universe, a comfortably abstract three-dimensionality ceases. Then you inevitably become aware of real distinctions, for you have performed something quite remarkable. You have eliminated the ordinary organism of the head and have returned to man's etheric organism. Now the etheric organization is essentially different from the physical organization of the head. It is only through the fully developed head, achieved in this incarnation, as a result of the previous one, that abstractions become possible. All abstract thinking, all thinking on the plane of pure thought, is bound to this head organism, which we attain only by leaving the spiritual world and coming into this physical world in order to make independent of our earthly organization something that was formerly dependent on it. This will show you that man, like the plant, is embedded in earthly influences, but with this difference, that man makes himself independent of them through his head organism. If the rest of our organism were to think without the head, as indeed it can, man would at once feel himself one with the whole organism of the universe. If it were possible to invent a very comfortable, in quotes, sleeping car, it is at the present time perhaps unlikely, but a car from which you did not look out and from which all noise and rattle were eliminated, you might fall into the illusion that you were in a still and silent room, for you would perceive nothing of its movement. But upon looking out of the window, you would see that it is moving forward, although you are sitting quietly in the car. Similarly, as soon as you also release yourself from the illusion which your head organism produces in you during the process of making itself independent of the earth organization, you will observe that you are taking part in the earth's motion. That is to say, it is possible, through the transition from what in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds I have called the present-day mode of forming ideas to what I have called imagination, it is possible to feel the movements of the earth because you are then, quote, looking out the window, close quote, looking into the spiritual world. In just the same way, as you look through the window of a train and notice the landscape outside continually changing, so do you, when looking out of the physical sense world into the spiritual, perceive in the alterations in the latter, as you pass by, that you and the earth are not at rest, but moving forward together.
Hence we cannot arrive at a true spatial image of the cosmos in astronomy if we insist upon constructing it just with that part of our organism which has made itself independent. Consider for a moment what we as civilized humanity have done since the beginning of this fifth post-Atlantean epoch. We have thought about the universe with our head, and it is the head, that part of us, which has made itself quite independent of the earth, that has condensed planetary movements into the abstract three dimensions. We have the Copernican conception of the universe, designed for us by the least appropriate means, the head, the essential characteristic of which is its emancipation from involvement in cosmic movements. It would be somewhat as though you wished to obtain an idea, shall we say, of the movement of a railway train in which you are traveling from a picture of it you draw with your hand without reference to the movement of the train, but solely according to your own ideas. You draw something, you make yourself independent. You draw something, you make yourself independent. But you cannot consider such a drawing as depicting the actual movement of the railway train. It has nothing whatever to do with it. And just as little to do with the world process has a picture of it that we have designed according to external spatial astronomy, using for the purpose the means that are the most inadequate for its conception. Now, just observe to what conclusion a conception of things invested with reality leads us. We are then compelled to admit that our spatial astronomical picture of the world has been built up with the most inadequate means. No wonder it contradicts the results that are obtained when the right means are used. Of course, for certain purposes, this view of things is well adapted, because since the middle of the 15th century, when the fifth post-Atlantean period began, we have had gradually to learn to form thoughts independently of the universe. We shall hear in the next lecture how that came about. But we have thereby lost the capacity to really know anything of the movements we undergo together with the earth, and which then surface when we train ourselves to feel concretely the otherwise abstract dimensions of space. We shall continually deepen our understanding of these things, for we cannot arrive at a complete picture in any other way than by building up our ideas in cycles, as it were. After yesterday's lecture, Dr. Stein has taken the trouble to construct a model showing the movements which result when we observe man together with the earth, or in other words, the movement of the earth taken in its absolute sense. If, instead of following the motion of plant forces in spirals, I follow the movements described by man with the earth, I again find a spiral, but one which is progressive. This spiral gives us an illustration of the real movement of the earth, and at the same time a picture of that of the sun. Suppose for a moment that the earth is here and the sun there. An observer sees the sun in this direction. The earth progresses, but exactly in a line behind the sun. When the earth is here, the observer now sees the sun in another direction. 
the sun advances still further, the earth following, and once again the observer sees the sun in the other direction. That is to say, he sees the sun at one time on the right and another time on the left, owing to the way in which the earth follows the sun. This has been interpreted as demonstrating that the sun stands still and the earth revolves round it. In reality, it is not so. The earth moves along behind the sun. The observer sees the sun to the right when the latter has arrived at one point of the spiral path while the earth is here. Next, he sees the sun to the left, then again right, then left, and so on. All this gives the observer, who judges by outward appearances and loses sight of his own movement, the impression that the earth revolves round the sun. From this you will realize how great a possibility of deception arises when one judges by exterior appearances. For here indeed a relativity of motion exists. We can really affirm that those who now calculate the apparent motion of the sun do not perceive their own motion and omit to take into consideration the relation between the sun and the earth. I should like you to try to form a true idea of what I have said about course or motion in a spiraling line, because one must visualize in a model such as this the fact of the earth following in the wake of the sun and then we shall be able to go on to what I should like us to achieve tomorrow, namely a true understanding of the facts before us. Today I have intentionally given suggestions only and purposely left many questions open, but they will be answered tomorrow or in one of the subsequent lectures. I wanted to show you in a quite simple way the experiences of one who looks out through the windows of the physical world and observes the spiritual world outside as it rushes by. In this way he can form an idea of the real motion of the earth and also of the sun. But I will show you first how to gain a conception of the true relation of the earth to the sun, that the earth actually follows the sun in its path, by searching for the one thing that will show us this relationship, namely certain processes in the human organism, connected with the embodiment of the sun in man, the human heart. For it is by taking our start from the knowledge of man that we must seek to attain a knowledge of the universe. The end of Lecture 2